continue a little with the reflections on the Satipatthana some extracts from things that we are cultivating or will be cultivating at this time (coughs) and how monks does a monk abide contemplating the body as body here a monk having gone into the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty place sits down cross-legged holding his body erect having established mindfulness before him mindfully he breathes in mindfully he breathes out breathing in a long breath he knows that he breathes in a long breath and breathing out a long breath he knows that he breathes out a long breath so on for short breaths he trains himself thinking I will breathe in conscious of the whole body I will breathe out conscious of the whole body he trains himself thinking I will breathe in calming the whole bodily process he trains himself thinking I will breathe out calming the whole bodily process he abides contemplating the body as body internally contemplating body as body externally contemplating body as body both internally and externally he abides contemplating the arising phenomena in the body he abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the body he abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body or else mindfulness that there is body is present to him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness and he abides independent not clinging to anything in the world and that monks is how a monk abides contemplating body as body when walking knows that he is walking when standing knows that he is standing when sitting knows that he is sitting when lying down knows that he is lying down in whatever way his body is disposed he knows that that is how it is and he abides independent not clinging to anything in the world when going forward or back is clearly aware of what he is doing in looking forward or back he is clearly aware of what he is doing in bending and stretching he is clearly aware of what he is doing in carrying his inner and outer robe and his bowl he is clearly aware of what he is doing in eating, drinking, chewing and savouring he is clearly aware of what he is doing in passing excrement or urine he is clearly aware of what he is doing in walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up in speaking or in staying silent he is clearly aware of what he is doing so he abides contemplating body as body internally, externally and both internally and externally and he abides independent not clinging to anything in the world and that monks is how a monk abides contemplating body as body now you um, see with this the things that we're looking at and here the Buddha is making into um, a very definite teaching path are very ordinary objects can't get much more ordinary than the breath walking, standing, lying down eating, sitting, stretching, 
carrying things, urinating, so forth. These are all totally normal um, physical functions, physical postures, occupations. The objects of our practice are very simple. And we, uh, but one can refine them. There is thatness which sometimes feels, well, this is a bit bald, isn't it? Maybe we could, you know, do special things, <coughs> special practices, special forms of meditation or, or, or whatever. But actually the, the objects are very simple. And so our attention goes more into, into uh, how can we attune our mind to the simple, th- simple objects of, the, of, of our attention? And this implies actually a clarification and lightening of the process by which we cognize, associate, recognize, relate to things, which for most of us is extraordinarily complex. We don't just know something as it is. We, we create ideas, opinions, views, judgments, comparisons. We can write encyclopedias around the, the body, contemplating the body as body. Can anybody see their body just as a body without defining it, comparing it, uh, creating different kinds of ideas and notions about the way it should or shouldn't be? You know, so much of our, our society is about not contemplating the body as body, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's making it super fit or athletic or strong or making it live forever or beautiful and so forth. But the body as body, is, it's a, a physical formation, uh, um, very much an earth element thing, not a, not a celestial ethereal or, or sublime thing, it is as it is and its nature is like any other thing in nature is to, to begin and to end, it dies, it sickens, it ages, this is, this is how it is and uh, our, our society is actually uh, determined to forget that or trying to look the other way all the time Because to know it as it is to uh, to an untrained mind is seems uh, bleak or cold or analytical. It doesn't seem to be anything that, that where there's a quality of joy or, or happiness or uplift in that. Now, for in meditation, you're actually not just the objects that you're looking at, but it's the, it's the quality of how you look is what you're really working with. Because it's in the knowing, in the contemplating, in this very dynamic of how our minds contact, relate to, suffuse, attend to, work with the feelings and the qualities of our, of our simple existence here that we're finding uplift, we're finding delight, gladness, calm and peace. It's in the knowing, it's not in, not in the objects. 
Now you can, of course, when there's a certain boost, a leg up you can, you, you can get, if you like, just by, say, living in a situation where um, the, the objects are, are around you are calming. There's a kind of pleasure in that. One gets a certain lift that the, the physical form is put in a position where it's calm, where it's steady. The environment here is silent. That's very pleasant. It, uh, nature is a very uh, pleasing, calming, gladdening reflection for us. We are privileged today with some very pleasant weather. This is, this is a, uh, lovely for us, isn't it, to have a sunny day. Our minds can be affected like that. But as long as we haven't cultivated the, the spirit, then this is as far as it can get. And after a while the, the sitting becomes boring, the sunny day becomes so what, the quiet becomes uninteresting and so forth. It doesn't stay pleasant or uplifting for long. One finds, in fact, that the, until you've cultivated the spirit, then the various kinds of, of lack of being ill at ease, or finding distress and doubt, worry, uh, arise and get projected onto this environment. Now, this is a situation actually where there isn't any real need to worry because everything is, is taken care of. There isn't any need to doubt because things are just set up exactly like this. And yet one can see that, the, that in the course of a day the mind can worry about whether one is doing it right, whether there's any point in it, uh, doubt whether this method or that method should be done, and so forth. To just stay with it and to trust it, to just stay with the routine is difficult for people. That in which thinks, well, maybe a bit more of this or a bit less of that, or we could do it this way or that way. This is the doubting, worrying, restless mind. Now, to, to, make, to take full advantage, not just of this situation, but of your own mind, of your own knowingness, you have to trust it totally. And the knowing is not doubt, the knowing is not worry. Knowing and contemplating is not thinking and conceiving and, and, and viewing and judging. You don't say the, the monk judges his body this way. He analyzes his breath, he thinks about whether the breath is long or short. The knowing and contemplating quality of meditation is not a, a rational uh, personalized view and opinion or judgment, nor is it an analytic or intellectual exercise, because when you consider it, these intellectually these are pretty uh, uninteresting notions, aren't they? How much intellectual um, delight can you get out of knowing that you've just breathed in and you've just breathed out? End of you know, end of essay, I breathed in, I breathed out. As an idea, it's, it's totally, um, almost completely meaningless, isn't it? So when we're saying, when we're talking about knowing and contemplating, it's not this kind of knowing. The knowing of meditation. 
Now everything around this, what I'm trying to, to present here, is really aimed at shifting the knowing into the heart and out of the brain, out of the analytical consciousness into the comprehensive a consciousness that actually directly, tangibly experiences and is with something rather than steps back, thinks about it, decides whether it likes or dislikes, forms an opinion and, and packs that idea away. Say, oh, that was interesting. Now it's a memory. It reminds me of this and that and the other. We can kind of categorise our meditation, can't we? Was it like this or was it like that? How does it compare with you know, various other retreats one could have done. But we're, this is, this is to be approached heartfully when we know something, like knowing the, the breath or the long breath, means you actually place your attention right there with it and you go through that whole process of breathing totally, without any expectation that it be other than it is or that there be any kind of meaning to it or point to it or that there's going to be any kind of result we just with it we completely unite with that and this can't be done intellectually we can't think that so knowing is this jnana the word in, in Buddhist language jnana which means insight knowing, which means a, a Gnostic uh, comprehension and direct experience. And then one begins to experience when the mind is, not that the objects are especially delightful, some of them are calm or, or clarifying, but the knowing is breathtaking. The knowing is wonderful. It's exactly what it is. It has wonder. Now you can use the, use the breath because the breath is wonderful. It begins and ends and that's wonderful. As an, it's not a wonderful idea but the wonder that, that <coughs> there is in contemplating the breath is that each one is completely new so each one is totally fresh. There's nothing there to be held nothing there to be grasped at, there's nothing special about it. So our mind, in order to be with the breath, has to be in a state of complete attendance and wonder rather than conceiving it's this way or it's that way, I've seen breaths. Because if you, how long can you do that if you're, just, if you're just noting them as, oh, this is a breath, so what? How long can you actually stay with it to do that? If you have titanic willpower, you could probably do it for a few days. But in this retreat, we're not encouraging any kind of titanic willpower. We're encouraging an opening of the heart and an attendance to. Now, when one attends to anything completely moment by moment, we, we, we are in touch with its dynamic change, with its flux, with its mystery. If you, if you really go into a breath, what is it? Where is it? It's, a, it's an energy form, isn't it? It's a constant sparkle and flicker. There's an arising, there's a kind of 
energizing and an uplifting. There's a cooling and a calming, a soothing. But these are the na very nature of experience is evanescent. It can't be tacked down. It can't be categorized. So that the the mind eventually gives up any kind of description of it as being one way or another, and becomes in a state of wonder, in jnana. It suspends the thinking process. So we don't have to fight with our thoughts, or even stop thinking, so much as with uh, enthusiasm approach uh, the breath physical formations from the right place. Now, myself, I've tried different ways with this. First of all, as I expect uh, has been the case with, with uh, many people, this, I read through that bit, knowing the body, knowing the breath, okay. So, I thought, right. Breathe in, I thought to myself, breathe in. Then I breathe out, I thought, breathe out. Okay, done that. And then knowing it's a short breath, so when I breathe in, it was a short breath, I think that was a short breath. And breathe out, I think that was a, that was a short out breath, or a long one. After about five breaths, I thought, well, yeah, I've done that now. How long have you got to keep doing this? And the, and the internal din short breath, long breath, long breath, short breath, started coming along. And, and then I tried to develop that. Right? This is not as long as the last one. This is shorter than that one. And then to develop the meditation, I'd kind of develop like the feeling of, of as with this whole um, text, contemplating the body. Here I'm walking, walking, foot going along the ground, touching the ground, walking, touching the, the step, getting into the chair, sitting down. This constant um, commentary on what I was doing. So after what I wanted to, you know, it became like a kind of punishment to, to meditate. You think, have a, you know, have to spend a whole afternoon being mindful. It's like subjecting yourself to cross-examination. <laughs> It was, you know, the last thing you wanted to do to somebody was to say, you've got to go and be mindful. Because you knew what that really meant was you were going to sit there and think about yourself all the time. This kind of parrot on your shoulder, chirping away, thinking, thinking. <laughs> so I, I realised actually that, that after a while, something this wasn't quite what I wanted to do. I'm sure it wasn't really what the Buddha meant or any of the teachers meant, but just the way that my mind interpreted it. Because in the in the West, particularly, we we don't really have any other way of knowing other than the intellect, and we develop this very highly, don't we? You study, you go to university, read and write. It's all abstract knowledge. It's all conceptual. And we praise ourselves upon this. So if you want to be a real knower, then you, you think a lot. And I'd certainly developed a lot of, of thinking capability. 
so so much so that it was impossible to conceive of knowing without thinking. So when it says in the book, no, I thought. Uh, did it with great diligence. Thought about everything. But, but when one begins to, say, work with this practice into the mind, then it becomes completely ridiculous to, to be thinking about thinking, about thinking that you're thinking. So you're contemplating the body, and then later on we'll be, say, contemplating the mind and mind objects. And then if, you're, if, you're, if you haven't developed knowing, then it really goes crazy <coughs> if, you, if you're thinking. Because you, everything you think about, you think, oh, I've just thought that. Now I think I've thought that. Now I'm thinking about... <laughs> You're running around in circles. And Shut up. Stop it. Thinking about stopping it. Because <laughs> one actually hasn't really known any of it. We haven't really known any of it. Because to know something in this way is... To, to someone who hasn't developed any faith, or any devotion, or anything other than just the, the head, is strangely, it's very strange. It's awkward. I realized that I'd actually never known anything, or anybody in my life. I'd never known myself, anybody else, I'd lived with people, had friends, but all we'd ever done was think about each other, and deal with each other on the, on the conceptual level of, you know, this is Joe or Harry, we play football together and, and so forth. But to actually know somebody directly was, was not anything one experienced. Like I didn't know my father at all, or my mother. You know, because when you're with your mother and father, you sit down and you talk about the football, weather, TV, you know, you argue about something with other. You don't actually get in touch with, with um, what they are what they're about. There's no direct experience. And similarly with oneself, one thinks and conceives but doesn't really know. And we, we can get very self-conscious about ourselves with a highly developed conceptual map and analysis of what we are. And if you really want to know yourself, you think, oh, must uh, go like the analytical or psychoanalytical approach develops this kind of knowing. Now that may be useful in some terms, but in meditation it's it's totally uh, off for for uh, nibbana because it just stirs up the the rational processes, and we find ourselves just uh, accumulating uh, agitated. Uh, and doubtful and worrying and anxious feelings. <coughs> so, putting aside this, this kind of, of reflection for knowing, there has to be a putting aside, a surrendering of, of the ideas that we have. And this can be quite frightening. Because in order to know something con in a contemplative way, we have to not know it intellectually. We have to have no way of n really knowing 
what we're doing anymore. Knowing whether this is going to work, knowing whether this is the, the right thing to do even, knowing whether it makes sense, knowing whether we are uh, you know, cultivating awareness or, or going psychotic. We have to get that to that kind of, of confidence, faith, trust in what we're doing to be able to no longer have any idea of what we're doing. Whether it's day or night or, or whatever. So that one begins to actually, that, that's, the, that's the challenge, isn't it? Now, why on a retreat, say, we, we set it up so that everything that, that one can, could conceive of as, as being, uh, needing to be known, is established. You know, you just do it this way, the bells ring and you come in for this. And the bells ring and you go out for that. I mean, it's, it can be a bit humiliating for the, for the intellectual mind, kind of bell ring, it's like I'm a chicken or something. It's kind of <laughs> <laughs> time to feed, and they scatter the grain down, and ding, 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 back into your nesting boxes and so forth. Zoo time. But we have to give up even that, that sense of, of independence, to be totally humble. To, to abandon our, not, not as a com- some kind of permanent position, but as an experiment so that we can put that aside to allow and to realize that there actually is a knowing in us there already that's quite competent, quite, quite aware of what's going on, that you can trust and rely upon. And you, if you rely upon that, you'll actually do far better than if you rely upon your ideas and thoughts and beliefs and suppositions, criticisms, analysis and judgment. You begin to feel out. And what are the, the qualities, say, that we, we recommend for the heart of Buddhist practice? We recommend things like, like virtue, goodness. Now you can feel out goodness. Now if you think about it, it's either unimpressive or you can find ways in which you can wriggle round. You can always justify virtue out of existence. Think, well, I really, you know, I need to do this. Or, after all, let's not get attached to purity. You know, <laughs> you know purity, you get attached to that. You can always find some clever way in which you can wriggle around. Things, I'm just doing this in order to, de- to develop non-attachment to, to these ideas of purity, because I don't want to get attached to that. Hmm. <laughs> actually, you know, if, you, if you're really honest, then you, you recognise actually that the, the case is more that one just doesn't want to do it. And that's fine to know that, to know that, say, there's a resistance in us to, to uh, say, keeping the eight precepts. Nobody wants to do that as if some kind of burning passion of enthusiasm, one thinks, wow, great, more precepts, more restraint. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we're honest about it, something in us thinks, mm, no more fun, huh. can't do what I want. Mm. And that's the way it seems at first. From, like, for me, becoming a monk was quite a frightening thing. <coughs> it was, as an idea, you know, I was what, 25, 26 years old. Maybe I could do it when I'm 60. 
after all, you know, there's still a few places, there's still a few people, there's still a few, you know, fun things I haven't done yet. There's an idea, it's made you break out into a cold sweat. What will happen if I don't get fed anything today? If if they don't give me any food and arms around? What will happen if? I'll be stuck here for the rest of my life, I don't have any money. If I don't have any, any, like my brains will just rot away, just sitting here in a, in a hut, contemplating the breath, not having anything stimulating, no new ideas, get out of touch with everything, nobody will employ me by the time I'm 30. I'll be so kind of jaded, no, no women will want to know me, be kind of all burnt out and, and withered. <laughs> Lost touch with everything on the shelf. As dreadful as an idea. So, but the idea was so dreadful that, you, that one actually realised one couldn't think about it. <laughs> they just stopped thinking about it and actually I'd kind of calm down. How is it today? How are you feeling today? Ground still here. Air is still here. Okay, I'm still around, I'm still alive. And that actually, it was just about that much sometimes. Yeah. Because the stripping away was so, was so, uh, was so radical that the, the shock of it meant that one, you know, at first you just were, were feeling out, just where am I? What am I? If I'm not all these things that I've thought, if the very process by which I comprehend and get in touch with the world is suddenly being just, you know, passing out of the door. But that's like, like when you're a baby, you're just a tiny little, you know, six months old baby, you can't grasp very much, you're pretty helpless, you wail a lot, you flop around a lot. And that's what I, I did in meditation, wailed a lot and flopped around. <laughs> flopped around a lot, internally, the kind of clawing and flopping. But that, that knowing, just knowing that much, that I was kind of clawing and flopping, and being humble enough and having enough confidence, or just, just uh, resolution to stay with that until that knowing gradually grew up, grows up over time, till it becomes strong and fine. And, and, and refined and cultivated. And then the one begins to actually know things from the heart. And then you, can tr- you really know without doubt. As long as you're thinking, whatever you think, you can unthink. You can think it one way, you can think it the other way. You can set it up and you can knock it down. The knowing is that is, is totally straight and beyond doubt. You don't have to create it and you can't destroy it. So with, with some things we, like the Buddha recommended, to want to, to know. The teaching to the Kalamas, well, most, I found most, perhaps the most inspiring, uh, at first, the most inspiring Buddhist teaching was when the Buddha was asked by these um, townsfolk who they should believe. Should they believe him or some guru who'd been there by there a week ago, or a priest who'd been there a month ago, or a yogi who'd been there six months ago, 
uh, what text or scripture or tradition they should follow, he said, don't follow any of them. Don't believe in any of them. What can you know? And then basing the knowing on what perhaps we can intuitively know, though sometimes we don't want to accept. We can know that we should, say, be good and kind to each other. No matter you know, if other people are unpleasant, spiteful or nasty, that somehow it's better for us to be patient, forgiving and kind, isn't it? However justified we may, may think of being angry and indignant. Simple things like that. We know that, that greed can't, is not really very good for us. That, that it would be better to be modest and, and uh, peaceful rather than uh, greedy. Uh, anger and violence, we know those are, uh, don't, are not right. But if you try to get rid of them by thinking about them, then you can't do it. If people think about their anger or their greed, they think, oh, that's, it's disgusting, I must stop doing this. Stop it. You know, or, or the desires of one kind or another, we think about them. And we try to stop them with our thought. But to, if you know them from the heart, you begin to actually approach these experiences from the heart and even enter into that to have contact with one's feelings, knowing them directly as they are, then the need to engage with or repress passes away. Because when we know something directly as it is, we see it as changing, not self. As something that whenever we approach it, it's rather like grasping a shadow. It's gone. It takes courage to do that. Some of these shadows are, are pretty convincing. Quite, quite real, aren't they? And our knowing seems so wavering and feeble and, and un insecure. Now you use the this is but this is your refuge. This is what you're spending this time here to nurture, to cultivate, to to attend to, to support, to look after. So it becomes strong for you. you know, so you establish it around something that's not threatening. Something concrete like the breath, knowing the breath, knowing the body. Now rather than needing to, to make special practices out of this, making it so that it's very tangible, <coughs> something everybody can do, just know, uh, being fully conscious of the body when you breathe in. Now, some people like maybe to concentrate on their nostrils or their abdomen, or most people like to doubt about which one to do. <laughs> or a bit of both, or which is better, or whatever. Strangely enough, the Buddha didn't, didn't say anything about this in this particular teaching. He just said, know the breath. Where? Which one? You know, 
It's looking for the particular detail of the object, whereas what is more important now is the subject, <coughs> is the knowing. So what about wherever you can get it? <laughs> wherever you can get hold of it, then know it there. But for, uh, say, you have to see what, these, what, it, what they do. Now, if the, the breath, if you're, say, contemplating the breath is just breathing in and out through the body, that can give you a very expansive, because it's a large canvas, isn't it? It's an expansive feeling. And so one can see what that's like, expanding the breath, kind of developing a large uh, feeling around it. Perhaps you feel a bit cramped or tight in this rather restrictive environment of, of, a, of a meditation retreat. Maybe that would be good. But then if you're all over the place, you know, if, if your mind, you need to know for yourself, your mind is, is really spaced and going out all over the place, then perhaps you can, you know, you can shorten it down to a particular point that you're very clear about. One point on the nostrils where you, you get to that sensation. You don't, you know, go off into, into um, rapture and bliss. You just stay right with that particular point. But then if you're especially like an intensive kind of person, where you're always, you know, tensing up and you concentrate, concentrate, concentrate until you get a headache. And then you concentrate, if you concentrate with, the, with your brain so that you end up thinking all the time, then you, perhaps you need something that's going to be a bit more joyous and, and calming, has kind of more an emotional quality to it. Calming the body, like using the breath just to, to calm and unify. So our, our mind becomes our body, has this kind of tranquil rhythm to it of, of the, the breathing of the body. And the mind will take on the tone of whatever you attune it to. If you attune your mind to, to refined objects, it becomes refined. If you attune it with a, with a willful attitude, it becomes cramped. It becomes, the, it becomes what you condition into it, or the attitude you bear towards it. If you're very domineering, the mind becomes dominated, and cowed, and cramped, and repressed. If you're generous and loving, your mind tends to take on those qualities. Also, these are, this is a, a, a practice to be developed. It's not three breaths, that's it. So you have to develop it and allow it to develop your, your mind. At first, if, you're, if, you're, if your meditation is expansive, you're going to feel pretty distracted. If it's, if it's very concise, you're going to feel pretty compressed. But you have to develop these, pick them up and, and, and make use of them and really know for yourself what, in, what your intention is, because this is the primary conditioning factor of any, of any mind state. It's not just what the body is doing, but the very mind that you put into it. If you're doing it impatiently, or in order to avoid things, or, like, or uh, in order to become something or gain something, then that is going to have a very powerful effect on what you experience. If you grant yourself the freedom of mind for this retreat to experience the most delightful, ordinary or hellish 
experiences without making anything of it. You, um, th- uh, but you're just going to develop knowing of that, knowing as it is. This, I think, is uh, the way I understand it the best. The, this is the Buddha quality, the, what's called the Lokavidu, the knower of the worlds. The ordinary world, the heaven world, the hell realms. The knowing of all of that. And this is the, the really transcendent, the one which covers them all. So one in, as I've suggested before, when we meditate we take refuge in Buddha. We remember that every day we come here we have Buddha images, we chant to the Buddha to make this a clear expression of our intention. And then we practice as Buddhas, as knowing rather than as thinkers of the world, as knowers of the world. This world that we live in, this little world here, has many aspects to it, doesn't it? But all of them you can cultivate the knowing around, walking meditation. Now, what I've observed in my own, own practice and, and, and certainly with peop- other people is that uh, walking meditation often people feel a bit confused about because it is so, it's not so, you can't have any, you can't really get willpower going in walking. You can do it more with sitting when you can actually kind of hold something, stay with something, but walking you have to be completely open with. But when you're open, you, you, you tend to space out and go all over the place. So with walking meditation, you have to find this balance between it. And it's, it's a very skillful and excellent means to cultivate that way which is open without following. It's just noticing. So when we're walking along, sure, we can notice the thoughts coming, going through the mind. We can notice... Uh, whether it's warm or cold, we can notice whether we're interested or not interested, whether there's a bird chirping in the trees or not. We can notice what the, um, all this. We can notice a lot, but don't think about it. Just knowing that, and then knowing the movements of the body, just keep coming back to the feet, placing the feet on the ground, getting to the end of the path, the standing still, the weight in the body, and so forth. So this is very good for mindfulness actually, because it's not holding anything. It's developing, cultivating a kind of inner direction in which the very theme of our meditation is not the point, it's an under it's a it's a theme that we use to be open with to the way things are we can observe all this flux and flow passes through changes and we just have to cultivate the kind of of clarity self discipline that just stays with that rather than follows going around the center here these ordinary things, standing up, leaving the shrine room, going to the kitchen, looking after your room, doing the chores. 
cultivate the knowing. We don't just make these into either bits in between the meditation. Now I'm meditating, now I'm going to go and do the chores. This is worldly. This is a really limited way of practice. You're never going to practice correctly as long as that attitude remains unquestioned. There's never enough time to meditate in the world if that's your attitude. It's always a matter of being interrupted when you were just about to get there. If only I could have sat for a little longer. Take your meditation with you. The world is not going to change to fit your desires. Here, most about everything that could be done is done. So that you have to use every moment of the day as an opportunity to really know when you're cleaning the table, that you're with that. And you, you do that with the same kind of aspiration and sincerity as you breathe, as you walk. And with the same kind of openness. If something else needs to be done, you do it. Look, look after, to look after one's room and one's living space. These are all very fundamental uh, at, uh, ways of cultivating the knowing. Because in this, what you are cultivating is not the objects anymore, but, uh, but the heart. This, uh, that is, say, has heart qualities in it. There's nothing to analyse about cleaning a room or mopping a floor. But it does require qualities such as patience, giving, sincerity, commitment, concern for the welfare of others community spirit. And these are nourishing for the knowing, for the heart of meditation. So the more that, like, as in, a, in a monastic life, most of our practice is just on that level. And so that when it, you do go time to sit in, in meditation practice, you find there's, some, there's, there's this wonderful strength of not asking, expecting, demanding anything, not criticizing or judging anything, but an openness to know and to be with the way it is. And then when one is with the way it is, there's no more suffering. And this is what we're here for.
<coughs> Some instruction this morning in the um, practice of mind cultivation, bhavana, as the Buddha used this expression. So even uh, this is a much more helpful uh, way of considering. We're doing cultivating, which means you plant a seed, you wait, you provide the right kind of nourishment, you wait some more, you look after it, you watch, you listen, pray a little, something comes up, you watch it very carefully, it grows, it's very very tender at first young tender thing you don't start trying to rip tomatoes off the plant before it's grown and then if you cultivate rightly then you get a beautiful plant not only that but the mind of the cultivator becomes beautiful which is the the main thing now, so when we're cultivating, we're not especially, of course it's, it's, it's beautiful to be able to accomplish a fine meditation practice, just as an object, to have a calm, clear mind, to have refined mind states, to be able to sit comfortably, pleasantly, while the, the moments just flick by without effort, very nice. But um, <laughs> there is the, the other, isn't there? When the, most of us, <laughs> that wouldn't be a problem for most of us. Most of us, the problem is wanting that and not having it. I think most of my problem with, with the higher states of consciousness is not having them. <laughs> But whatever, it's high or low, the mind of the cultivator can become very sweet, very bright, very peaceful by cultivating correctly. And the, the, uh, the joy of this and the freedom of this is that no matter what seed we're cult, no matter where we're cultivating, you know, wh- whether it's in a refined setting such as this one, which is in this world, a pretty uniquely refined kind of location. We've never been in a place so with so many people so silent. Even even monasteries are not as refined as this in in their silence. There's always things coming and going, and and so forth. But you have to consider that uh, this is a very special time and to make use of this special time so that and the idea of having a a refined retreat situation such as this one is to make it quite clear as to where all the movement and the noise really is and how we can see that in our hearts come to terms with it there and dispel it there and then when we can do that then the noise and the confusion of the world 
we can dismantle that from where it connects with us. The world can rotate, but we don't rotate with it. We can be still in the noise and the silence and <coughs> the movement of life. So it's important this detachment from any kind of object or experience or state, phenomenon, whatever. Now consider that uh, we have to work from it from attachment, if we're honest, and we, we need to cultivate, and we think we need to practice. Then most of us got a, a feeling that, that there's things we are stuck into, that we get compelled into, that we get carried away by, that we really wish we didn't. Uh, we feel confused or rather uh, off balance. So we have to recognize we come from a place of, of attachment, attachment to things that move and change and we tend to get thrown around by them, by our thoughts and feelings, emotions, by the hurly-burly of city life, upsets us. So we have to come from that. And then when you're, when you're looking, you can see and to recall the nature of, of attachment, just not what we're attached to, but the very quality of that, that holding on. Because what we're attached to can change. When I was eight years old, my attachments were, were one way. When I was 18, they became another way. When I was 28, they're another way and so forth. So I didn't really have to, when I was eight years old, when I was, I didn't have to worry about being attached to gobstoppers or, or candy bars, because with time that just passes away. The, that's just the way it is. Our attachments are not permanent. In meditation, notice you're actually consciously attaching to something, aren't you? You fix your mind upon you, you try to attach, you try to hold to a, to a form, to the, the conventional form of this retreat, ask to attach to it. Not emotionally attached to it, but, but consciously attached to it, not attached to it out of, uh, out of careless heedlessness, but consciously to establish yourself that this is the way it is, and there's the, the morning chanting, and then the breakfast, and then the sittings, and so forth. And yet that's very most of us that's not something we can do easily. We have to make an effort to do it. And then to attach to a meditation theme, you know, the breath, the movements of the body, of course, is, is very slippery. It's, we begin to see that attachment is not a permanent quality. It's a changing thing, dependent upon, say, what, one, what is new or interesting or exciting, stimulating, and so forth. Now meditation is not set up to be exciting or stimulating or fascinating. It is at first a little more fascinating when it's new, maybe day one, first minute day one, or you know, maybe the first hour of day one. After a while it's no longer new, Fascinating, it's boring, dull, etc. But it's supposed to be this way. I mean, we don't think, well, now 
you know, now the next thing is, and the next thing is, now we'll do this, and now we'll invent a new meditation theme every day that gets more and more fascinating as the day goes by. So the tenth day we could be totally fascinated and, and thrilled, like the, like the movies. You build up to enormous climax, and on day day nine, you're the, this production was by... <laughs> you're all kind of... not a dry eye in the house, so enraptured and fascinated by it all. Oh, it's marvellous, more, 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 encore. It's not... Uh, I've never done a retreat like that. <laughs> Generally the way retreats go, there's a, there's a kind of thinking, well, I suppose I'd better do this, and oh, maybe this would be a chance when I could really, you know, get something together on this retreat, and then after three days, not get anything together, am I? Mm-hmm. Fumble, bore, humdrum, ho-hum, nod, doze, and, and, and so forth. And then the encouragement to actually begin to use that the way it is as the meditation object. So this is really quite interesting to see what one makes out of the nothing much. To see the kind of melodramas and movies that get played around what? Sitting, walking, lying down, eating, being in a place where which is manifestly running on goodwill, generosity, kindness, cooperation, tolerance, and hating every minute of it. (laughs) Because it's not fascinating me anymore. I don't like to be when I'm not fascinated. So, this is the nature of attachment, is to because perhaps even to get enlightened would be fascinating to make you some kind of really interesting, charismatic person. You know, a bit enlightened people are really fascinating. You know, that'd be neat, wouldn't it? I could be the first enlightened person on my block. He's kind of special, wouldn't it? But then, what do enlightened ones know? They know that everything that arises passes away and is not self. Not very, not fascinating, is it? kind of global news. War is fascinating, violence is fascinating, passions are fascinating, but the cessation of them is definitely not fascinating. And so we have to consider a whole kind of way of, of if we're going to do this, then to realise that all the things that we've been moved by in our lives, kind of stirred up by, to consider where do these go to? They end, don't they? That's where they go to. The great love, the great hate, the great traumas, the great breakthroughs, the profound visions come and go. And then they, they, they've ended, then all you can do is remember them. You think, I wonder what that meant. I wonder if that'll happen again. Do you remember so-and-so? What about that? We can just remember them. So, I've noticed is people's habits are to go places in order to have memories. You can go, I've seen this myself in travelling around, people with cameras and tape recorders and so forth. Going to a place, you don't actually go there to actually to be with it, you go there to record it so that when you leave it you can remember it. Think, look, here I was, this was me in Bodh Gaya, this was me in Nepal, this was me in Kashmir, here I was in Java, I can, now I can remember it. Because the memory we can have 
for a long while, the moment we can't have for a moment, can we? The moment of being in, in, in this place, for example, is as it is. And you can take a photograph of it and remember it for 20 years. Now, consider what the, that desire for experience is what? It's, a, it's buying into an illusion, buying into a habit of looking back, looking forward, comparing, contrasting, saying it was like this, it was like that, an experience that I can remember. If I have enough of these memorable experiences, then I can think my life has been worthwhile. I'm lying there on my deathbed, I could bring out my photo album and say, this is me in India, Kashmir, this is the, me in Java, this is me in Barre, croak. It was worthwhile. <laughs> I existed. <laughs> and even then you die. And <laughs> Anyway. So then all the fascinating, remarkable experiences, wonderful thoughts, profound discoveries have all gone. That's, what, uh, that's where they go, isn't it? Though we're, we're not looking for that anymore. Well, if we are, we can recognise that that's, that's how come we, we suffer, one of the ways in which we suffer and miss the point. What we are, so the very world of objects is something to treat with, with a bit of wisdom and reflection. How many times in our lives are we seeking something out there, someone out there, some place, some experience to have, to feel good about? Think, ah, oh, yes, I had it to talk about, to, to mull over, to analyse, to, to make things out of the world of objects. And meditation itself, meditation objects, are not so, so much, but we can, de- we can develop those. And you have to develop these with, with care and with wisdom. In the, in the Satipatthana it says that just as far as it goes towards dispassion, towards clarity, towards knowing, towards liberation. Words not to get fascinated by it or mesmerized by it or fixated. Uh, correct cultivation is not any kind of fixation upon a form, a theme, a philosophy, an idea, or a meditation object, tranquility, or any of it. It's, it's just for the letting go, the detachment, the abandonment of, of grasping. Is a, so here, say, we have tranquil objects as a basis. Some of them are more tranquil than others. Some of them are a little more special, and you can make more of than others. Sitting, you can make um, something a bit more of than, say, walking or cleaning your teeth. Cleaning the floor. But a skillful cultivator is someone who cultivates the way constantly. And they cultivate the way by by recognizing that the main development is not going to be in the object, but in the subject. In how this one, this being, develops or awakens. We use meditation objects for awakening, not for fixation, for freedom, not for bondage to a theme or a technique. But this will always bring you into, into conflict. The times when your technique won't work, 
meditation doesn't go well, don't get enough of it, you have to go out and clean dishes, and so forth. But the subject can stay with that. In fact, you can never get away from the subject. And this time we're learning to recognize the true subject, the knowing, the awakened, through the veils and the, and the clothes and the uniforms and the various overlays that we've become accustomed to adopting out of not knowing the validity of our boundlessness, of our formlessness, the value of our space, of our emptiness, of our freedom. To, to, to really be free you have to value freedom and get a taste for it. To for taste for non-being which is bright and boundless and to see that this is actually more substantial and peaceful than any of the identities, roles, notions, beliefs, assumptions that one can adopt. And this goes with us all the time. When we're fed up and annoyed there can be the knowing. When we're busy and confused there can be the knowing. When we're peaceful and tranquil there can be the knowing the one you can't get away from, the one that won't really believe in all of your mind games and moods. Now any meditation theme, and there are many, and it's not really up to me at this, uh, at this time or any time, the world has plenty of these, uh, tapes and books and so forth, stacked full of good, useful, skillful meditation themes and topics, so why create any more? That's the material perspective, isn't it? You're fed up with this one, chuck it away and get a new one. It's like the, the, this car's three years old, dump it. Get a new one with, without fins or with fenders or with the latest colour, coupes, hatchbacks. Fed up with this thing, had it for three years. This suit of clothes, dump it, buy something with a new cut. The new, the advanced, the quicker, the more dynamic, rather than the old, cranky old thing. That's the way our society works. So to consider that when we come, that's what we have to come from, to grow from, because we never, we can't say that we've ever found true fulfillment or peace of mind in following those impressions, because the new is a moment, isn't it? And the next moment is something else new. So if we want to find stillness, it's never going to be in developing something new. <laughs> How long does the new stay new for? Can any of us be permanently young before we get old and cranky and have to get thrown away because we're no longer new and advanced and developing? <laughs> so I, I found myself that um, just to work with that, um, to, ch to, to actually incline towards what is old. And I like, like that, I find more calming, particularly when I was more young and impatient than I am now, to actually incline towards things that were aging, old, not wonderful, not fascinating, was actually helped to balance out some of the impetuousness and the restlessness of that, of that mind. 
to find but to find a balance it's not that we're just kind of uh, stifling everything but to try to find the balance so we use calm which is repeated simple things that are not new and our, what we can make constantly new or in fact timeless not even new anymore but, but beyond that frame of reference beyond being new but totally timeless is awareness this awareness is timeless you're aware of yesterday but that awareness now timeless isn't it it's formless, it's spaceless there's awareness of heat, cold rising, passing away silence, form liking, disliking it doesn't move in time things move through that now whatever meditation themes we choose we use, I'm using just the simple mindfulness of breathing here at this time because I think it's the thing that most people have got a feeling for is well documented is, is well practiced and understood as a, as a technique and you will find that and you cultivate this you'll find that most, most teachers and teachings will give you advice and ways to, to work with with mindfulness of breathing so that you can always develop your practice at all times in this meditation object you can be super refined and analytical you can be broad and bubbly with it or any, anywhere in between the two but any of them to stimulate the five, five faculties the spiritual faculties this, we're using this for awakening for spiritual means and these are what's called um, sattā or faith virya, energy sati, mindfulness samādhi, unification and panya, reflective wisdom these five qualities the Buddha said merge in the deathless, incline to the deathless lead us to the deathless now anything we do when we're cultivating we do with these in mind trying to bear these in mind approaching our, our, the objects of our life with these in mind and beginning to instill these as attitudes, as ways of being as inclinations until they become firm and then they become supportive strengths or bala, powers that liberate us from holding on to any kind of object because just to let go of everything is you know, how do you do that? most people just fall over they let go of everything ooh, flop <laughs> you know, you just something because if we just let go of all the structures for example, what do we do? if it's just about letting go of every kind of structure then we just find ourselves confused and hanging on to confusion or hanging on to any old impulse that arises in the mind we create our own structures the structures of our impulses, emotions and habits and convictions and instincts they're there so we use a structure but we're using it reflectively how does this help to to catalyze something I can bring sattā, 
faith, open-mindedness, willingness. A willingness that comes because we have a sense of trust in the environment, in the situation, confidence in ourselves. As, as we um, were always suggesting, is taking refuge in Buddha, this, this aspect. When you really take refuge in that, beyond doubt, that this is where you're inclining towards, this is what you, the aspect that you can recognize that you are placing above all others, the awakeness, the knowing of the mind, then you, take, you, you, you develop confidence that takes you through the, the pits and the valleys and the mountains and the plateaus with the, the knowing, knowing them all, knowing the world as it is. Uh, so that, there comes a, a willingness. Now when we, when we take a retreat we have to do this constantly with, with a willingness to do it, a going forth, a rising up to, rather than, oh, suppose at 8 o'clock do this, 10 o'clock do this, just regimented into this, why can't we do it this time? Uh, well, it would be better if we sat later and got up at later, ate in the evening, did some yoga, better like that, regimented in this boring old form. Uh, Now, admittedly, the form is boring, or it can be very boring, but we're not making that the the central issue anymore. How to be willing towards something that's not fascinating, it's not totally repulsive, or cruel, or malevolent, it's okay. And then, without becoming petty about it, we can we would do that for ten days, nine days, whatever. And that, that, that is very, that kind of attitude is really supportive of one's practice. Then, we can, then you cultivate energy that's not based upon teeth-gritting willpower to get something out of it or to put up with it and endure it or to prove anything, but a, a will, uh, a, an energy that comes from the inquiry, the, the most powerful source of energy in meditation is the spirit of inquiry. It's the, what, how does this work? How is it that you know, we're doing this same thing every day and yet from moment to moment it's different, sometimes it's fine, sometimes it's, tra- it's, it's wonderful, sometimes it's ghastly. How does that work? What's happening here? The room's the same, isn't it? Chanting is the same. Teaching isn't anything really radically new. The same old me, isn't it? Some this, this change, the mystery, why things are this way. Where we can cultivate a sense of real effort and in, through inquiry, through wanting to know what we're about. So when you use something like a meditation upon the breath, then these two willingness to do it, no matter how uh, uninspiring it can be, we think that's not important. You can't ask things to always be delightful and inspiring and fascinating and new. That's not fair. Always inspire and delight me, otherwise I'm not going to listen. Is the child's way, isn't it? 
to awakening with growing up, so it's up to me now, this one here, to put my heart into it. I'm not going to ask anybody else to, to delight or attract me. Uh, it's kind of giving quality. And we can give ourselves to the breath to really look into what's happening there. And using the breath meditation as a, as a sign, as a flag, through which you become intensely interested in the movements away, the holdings on, the ripples, the way the mind works around that, the mind states, the dullness or the restlessness. And then how you can begin to balance your, use your, use your breath to, to, to find a balancing point to contemplate these. Energy, interest in that. And then when we recognize that things change, then we can also, say, bring energy into our mind through, through the meditation, through zest, through a brightness of, of attitude, even extending the breath, sitting with the eyes open, walking up and down and so forth. These means, but most important because we are interested in what this is revealing to us. The mind is starting to move into the, into the subject, the way it is. Who am I? What's happening? The way it is. And no longer being deluded by the way it is, but maintaining this steadiness. No, this is the foundation for mindfulness, observing, really noticing the way it is. Not the, there's plenty of ways one can notice the way it should be, the way it could be, where I wish it was, but the way it is, mindfulness established on that doesn't come from, from an energy that forces, stifles, manipulates, comes up with, with uh, with creations, but from an energy that's an intention to listen and to know. And then we really can notice the way it is without any bias or delusion. In fact, a lot of uh, effort or, and, and mindfulness is just about letting go. This direction of practice, as I said, the you know, in a retreat like this, one of the suggestions within it is one of, of renunciation, of abandoning, of putting aside. Now we begin to put aside our criticism, our judgments, the negativity, our impatience, the hindrances. Mindfully. And mindfulness is a light quality, it's an enlightenment, it's a noticing and then a moving away from, or not out of aversion, because this is just not necessary or skillful. So we, we put that aside, we refrain from that. This kind of effort, we could say it's rather like when you wait for something, which can be unpleasant, can't it? Now we can wait, you know, have to wait for your, your visa or wait for a bus or whatever and then 
if you're waiting, then you can feel that in you saying, oh, come on, hurry up. I don't know what I have to stand around here for. And then if, you're any, if you've got any wisdom at all, you put that aside. You let go of it, don't you? It's quite a normal thing to do. We, we, we put that aside. If, you're, if you've got a child that's, that's um, screaming and hollering, then inside something you, you would like to slug him in the head. Shut up. But then we don't do that. You know, be patient, wait. The right thing to do is this. Put that aside and respond in the appropriate way. Mindfulness works like that. It's not that we shouldn't feel aversion or anger or greed or sorrow, but that we can put them aside and saying, this is not the point, and this is not anything wrong with you or anything that one shouldn't have. This is just a practice. These things are for practice, for putting aside, which is just the action you do when you, you release your hand. It's not a throwing away or a pushing away, but a, a letting go. Mindfulness is this, noticing, observing, and then the, the letting go. From this there arises a unification, samadhi, through through abandonment of all the alternatives of the way things should be. Now, samadhi, if you, uh, one may, just from a cursory understanding, concentrate, okay, I know what that is, it's when you want to do something, you, you concentrate on it, want to, say, thread a needle, you know, really concentrate, mm. effort, Concentration, that sounds about right. Make an effort, concentrate, and then do it. But the drawback with that is there isn't any mindfulness there. You have effort, concentration. But the sequence, effort, mindfulness, samadhi, is, is, the, is, the, is the telltale sign. That isn't, that isn't what's called samal samadhi. That's worldly concentration. It's not unification of the heart and mind, which is the essence of true samadhi. To cultivate true samadhi there has to be uh, its spiritual practice, which means we have to give up a lot. We have to be patient a lot, we have to develop the spirit to put our soul and guts and heart into it and, and courage and love and faith and patience we have to put the spirit into it it's not just an a engineering course it's not a material thing where you, know, you just bash away and eventually come up with a finished product it has to be this internalization a giving and a revealing and an opening of the heart Faith, energy, or effort, mindfulness, samadhi, unification. When we abandon our negativity, our unwillingness, our skepticism, as our our resistances, our impatience, our hopes, even, then we just come to this moment, don't we? This is the way it is. It's this. 
and then you think, well, what is it? But you don't have to say what it is or think what it is, but to just be at this time. And this is unification. There's no, it should be, or it could be, or I want it, or I'd like to remember it five years, in five years' time. Tell me what it is so I can remember it, take a photo of it, stand back from it, think about it, write a book about it, draw it. It's just, it's this. And if we, when our lives are lived in this way, it's always just this. There isn't anything to remember because it's always the same. It's always just this. <laughs> Whether it's in Nepal or India or Java or Bari or the, the kitchen, it's, it's just this. The subject is totally unified and rather than a remembering, alienating, always chopping our life up into fragments of the past and the future of five years ago and Tom and Harry and Joe and this and that and the other, it's just this. From Samadhi, wisdom arises, the path. Now in the sequence of the Eightfold Path we have Virya, energy, uh, Vyamo, energy, effort, application, Sati, mindfulness, Samadhi, concentration or unification and then right view, samaditi, panya, wisdom. These, these Pali words are, are only there for kind of international conventional understanding. And so that sometimes when you look in the Buddhist text it gives you some, something to refer to. But essentially right view, wisdom, to know the way things are. We can know what what the hindrances are. We can know when we're going off. We can we can we can recognise that. And we can know the path, the path to the deathless, the path to to freedom. We have to have a conventional path because we live within conventional situations. We live within the body is a conventional form, isn't it? It's got limitations, customs, its own rituals. You try to tell the stomach to think, it doesn't know how to do it. It's got its own particular rules, it digests. Say to the stomach, you're equal, you're the same as everybody else. You behave like the liver or the lungs. They know it has to obey its, its, its rules, live within its conventions. And it's fine doing that. They have to live within, say, the conventions of this society. You know, what the, what the rules are, what the laws are, what the limitations are. And then the retreat with this. In the meditation, the, the rules of the meditation. Simple enough rules, but to, to have to live within them and stay within them. Now, this isn't because these rules are sacred or an end in themselves these conventions or limitations or standards, but they, they can, in meditation, in, in Dharma, these become means for catalyzing the path, to have right understanding of them, to purify one's intention with them. So that we use them for awakening, not for conditioning into becoming Buddhists, Dharmists, or non-Dharmists, or non-Buddhist Dharmists, I'm a Dharmist but I'm not a Buddhist, or I'm a Buddhist but not a Dharmist, or 
of the kind of eclectic Sufi, Dharmic, Zen, Buddhist, Vajrayana saint. <laughs> Which are fine. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you like uh, tutti frutti, <laughs> you know, you can kind of have these, these lovely blends. But of course, the main point is to, to use any old blend or, or just the straight, uh, any, any one of them to distill as a standard for reflection into, into you, into your awakening. Now we, we, can, uh, we can despise conventions, worship them, prefer one or the other, or feel confused about them, or we can use them for, for wisdom. Now any, like in the conventions of Buddhism, religious conventions, you see, these are towards establishing, say, calm, respect, patience, kindness, attention, energy, all these unfascinating things. <laughs> enlightenment, boring enlightenment, unfascinating enlightenment. These are, these are for establishing needs. Uh, and these are really, or we have them already, but we need exercises to, 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 to bring them into, into action so that we know and recognize what we are and, and, and don't dabble with what we're not, with what we can't own or possess or find satisfaction with, to really put that aside and to incline in towards that where our true peace and freedom are, using these conventions for, for, for willingness, for faith, for confidence, and for application, zest, inquiry, for noticing, observation, abandonment of, of that which is not conducive, the total unification of our mind and heart into, into this moment, and the wisdom to, to understand what we are and what we're not, the five powers that take you through anything, really. The world is full of objects, situations, environments, people and things, perfect place for cultivation. And so when we're very busy, we have jobs to do and things to do, this is the way it is. This is the form, this is the convention. There are certain regulations about how to cook a meal, how to drive a car, and then you do that with this attentiveness, mindfulness of, of it as it is, willingness, and a sense of personal interest in. And then you're just driving the car, mowing the lawn, cooking the meal, feeding the baby or whatever, rather than doing that, trying to remember what it was like being in Nepal five years ago hoping you could be in Tibet in three years' time, wanting to do a retreat tomorrow, and feeding this damn baby at the moment. Uh, this, why this path is one for, for human beings and the human predicaments that we find ourselves in. Now at this time, say, the, the, the way is this. We may suddenly think, oh, it'd be marvellous to mow the lawn, drive the car, feed the baby. I could practice better like that. And now I know what it's about. The real practice is 
mowing the lawn, driving the car, feeding the baby. That's it. That's not it. Because <laughs> right now it's this way. We've made a certain commitment to doing it like this and to being enlightened in this moment with the breath as it is which is somewhat like feeding a baby, driving a car, mowing the lawn with effort, mindfulness, being patient with it so you can get the essentials of all of everything that life is about right down in this breath it's like feeding the most hungry squalling baby, mowing the most weed-infested rocky lawn, driving a car through a traffic jam on two-star gas. Mm. You know, everything you can possibly need in for practice in, in watching one breath, walking up and down. Just notice how, how powerful these, these experiences are. We think that walking up and down is, is just a totally unmemorable experience till you do it and then it's mm, all over the place isn't it what's he doing, what's she doing, what's the weather like <laughs> plenty there to, to, to stay with, plenty there to, to weave through for you to really develop skill knowledge and uh, a sense of timelessness and great, great humour and great generosity about So you can continue this uh, practice today with really looking at it, looking into yourself, looking into this one here. And then whenever there's restrictions or feeling bound or limited, what is it that, that's like that? It's because of something we want we haven't got, something we don't want we, we, we have to have at this time. Now that's always the point in Dharma practice of letting go. Things are this way. And then when there's that, that spiritual sign, the rest of this just fits right into place. You have the tools right there. Okay, this is the way it is. How do we get on with it? Then our practice, it's certainly not even, but we know the path, we know the direction and we can, we can cultivate so this morning we'll continue with sitting, walking and uh, this afternoon I think I'll see um, some of group A or group A